This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, um, your delighted host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, today is fire hot. We're in a series right now called For the Love of Dating, Sex, and Relationships. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down to kind of write something about this, thought about a little more, hit the backspace button, started over, because nothing I say about today's topic, which is sex, feels adequate, right? Like, How do you talk about one of the most physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually loaded words in the history of language? I could just sit here and list adjectives all day long, and in some way, every single one of them would be accurate. Like, that's how wide and wild the human experience is around sex. It has meant a million different things to all of us, to you, to me, throughout our lives, in season, out of season. Our lives have changed. We've changed. Our bodies, our minds our likes, our dislikes, our pleasures, our understanding of ourselves. And here's what I have learned over the last handful of years. Your body, just as she is, as he is, as they are, it's beautiful. It's like wonderful. It's divinely made, wholly deserving of joy and pleasure, literally, just as you are. I've also learned that there's so much joy, like literally to be had when I decide to learn more about how my body actually works. Mine, 
not yours, not theirs, not, not the way someone tells me it should work. Mine, it's taken me years and it's going to take me more still to unhook all the shoulds that people have attached to my body, to sex, to pleasure, to responsibility, like really without my input. Because actually when you unhook the shoulds, it's sort of like peeling the layers off and finally seeing yourself for who you actually are. Oh man. Oh, today's conversation is so good. Oh my gosh. It's one of my favorite leaders in this space. What she reminds us today over and over is this, you're normal. If you don't have a lot of interest in sex, you're normal. If you're a woman who's more interested in sex than your partner, that's normal. If you're gay, straight, trans, cis, bi, pan, whoever you are, you're normal, okay? Because there is no one thing. There is no one way. There's no right or wrong here. And you deserve, no matter what, to find joy and pleasure in your body and your sexuality just as you are. So who's my guest today? Beloved returning guest, that's who? Dr. Emily Nagoski. So if you're part of the Gen Hatmaker book club, then I know you're just as excited as I am. Dr. Nagoski joined us a couple of years ago when we selected her book, Burnout, which she wrote with her sister, Dr. Amelia Nagoski. And it is one of the best books I've ever read about women and stress. It was a game changer for me. I read it in conjunction with The Body Keeps the Score. And it's like a hundred light bulbs went off over my head. If you have not read Burnout, I can't recommend enough. So Dr. Emily describes herself as a writer, an educator, researcher, activist, and nerd. She is a PhD in human behavior with a concentration in human sexuality. She's been a sex educator for decades, and she puts so much of her teaching in her award-winning book called Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. Sarah Bessie, my friend Sarah, is the first person who ever told me about that book, and We all bought it and we were all like, well, holy moly. And this is what we're going to talk about extensively today. Come As You Are is an accessible, worthy, good guide through sex and pleasure and your sexuality, as is Dr. Nagoski, obviously. She describes her mission as helping women live with joy and confidence inside their bodies. Isn't that nice? Isn't that lovely? Listen, I could have asked her a trillion things about sex and kept her my captive audience for like six straight weeks. I mean, she literally teaches entire semesters on this. So, you know, we could have talked for just as long about every question there is out there, but I think maybe here's the heart of what I wanted to get at today. Like you, maybe like me have probably seen a lot of change in how you relate to sex. You've probably had some of the same hangups for years and years and years, or haven't been able to find the solution that you are looking for or that you're wishing for, even if you're even still looking for one at all. And there's probably a lot we still don't know about sex and we'd like to learn and have someone answer our quote, dumb questions. But I'm just telling you, there is no such thing as a dumb question around sex or anybody asking it. You may want to know if it's possible to enjoy sex the way you did before your body birthed kids, or maybe even have the audacity to hope you could have better sex with the body that you have. Maybe your body's in menopause. Maybe it's coming up, whatever. It doesn't matter. 
wherever you're at, whatever your body has done, whatever your body is doing, wherever it is at, you deserve this. Maybe you just want to know everything as you know, okay down there. You know what I mean? Uh, I know a lot of my listeners have had the same partner for a long, long time, and you are no longer partnered with that person. And you are now dating or looking to share your life with someone else. And you want to know like, okay, when it comes time for sex with a new body, a new person's body, am I going to be okay? Are they going to be okay? What do I like now? What do I want now? Again, normal, normal, normal. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. There are so many things that culture has told us about our bodies and our sexuality that aren't even true. So Dr. Nagoski is going to tell us why that is, why context around sex matters. We talk a lot about that, which is exciting because context is something that we can have influence over. We have agency over a lot of our context, why our biological responses to sex differ so widely and how each of us have an accelerator and a break when it comes to sex. And every single one of us responds to both differently. Okay. There's not a right and a wrong here. There's not a yes and a no. There's not a better and a worse. This conversation is so permissive. And it's so liberating and it will change the way that you think about your body forever in a good way. I'm just telling you, this is one of the most empowering conversations we've ever had on the show. There is absolutely no shame here. And gosh, y'all, we talk about it, everything. We're orgasms, we're everything. Okay, it's all in here today. But what is not in here is shame. I'm done with shame around my body and around sex. Okay, I lived with that for half my life and I will not do it anymore. So I choose to listen to my body because I believe her to be so, so, so good, just as she is. I'm having a different experience inside my body than I've ever had. Anyway, I clearly have a lot of thoughts around this, but put your AirPods in, like buckle up. This is a straight at it conversation that is so liberating and freeing and empowering. And let's jump into it. Here we go. The absolutely amazing, one of my favorites, Dr. Emily Nagoski. Okay, Dr. Emily Nagoski, welcome back to the For the Love podcast. You are an absolute fan favorite around here. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, it's not sweet. It's a fact. Your work has meant so much to my community. Of course, we did burnout in the Gin Hatmaker book club and book club members still, we use shorthand around your work. We're like, I just, I got to complete the cycle. Uh, like we say your phrases all the time when we're managing our own stress and anxiety and our physical bodies. And so, so do I. You, that's so good because it's your research. And so I can just say around these parts, you have served me and my community so well. And today is no exception. I'm so happy that you're here. Me too. Okay. Listen, I gave you a gigantic glowing introduction, but one of the things that I told my listening community is that you have dedicated your professional life to helping women live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And like, it's real true possible is such a worthy goal. So first of all, thank you. Your work is so important to us and it's so countercultural and it basically is nothing we ever learned or we're told or we're taught. I know me either. Never. The opposite. And of course, what else we know from data and research is that when women are lifted up and empowered 
everyone is like whole communities, whole families, whole countries, the GDP, like women's wellness is literally good for the world. So this is a big deal. So we're going to, we're going to drill down into a bunch of it, but let me ask you this just right off the bat. Let's just set the stage. What is in your opinion, maybe what's the most empowering thing women could possibly know about their bodies and their sexuality? Let's just start there. Small question. Easy. easy. Just get started really gently. First of all, I think having curiosity about our own bodies and continually learning in a non-judgmental way, really important. But the foundation of that even is believing that you can trust your body and the messages it is sending you more than you trust anyone else's expressed opinion about what should be happening with your body or about, no, let me interpret for you what your body is saying. We can believe our bodies over and above anybody else's opinion about our bodies. That is revolutionary. This is something new for me, this learning, this confidence in our our body's own wisdom. You are one of my teachers. I have a handful of teachers that have really led me into the space, having grown up. I think I've told you before that in addition to just being a woman in culture, I grew up in like an evangelical subculture, which had an added layer of your body's literally bad and cannot be trusted. And if you want it, or if you think it, it probably just means you need to practice some self-denial. Like, so it was attached to like faithfulness or their lack thereof. So, I mean, it was a double whammy. Like nobody was telling me that my body had wisdom to share, that my body could be trusted, that my body's intuition was good. On the contrary, For my protection. Right? Why? 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 Why didn't we learn this? What didn't the world understand? Why is this something now that you and your colleagues are having to like retrain an entire generation around? The short answer, I mean, it's patriarchy, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It always has been. So in 2020, I went through a kind of a thing. A lot happened in 2020. And one of the things is that I got real worried about what my place in the world would be after the fall of American democracy. Wow. Just an easy little like, yeah, no. So I did a lot of research about fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism. And one of the things I recognized was that a feature that ties all of these types of government together, it doesn't matter who the other is. Like every one of these governments has a different like enemy, them versus us, but all of them have a traditional role for women, being pregnant, making babies for the state, cooking, cleaning, being kind, generous, attentive to other people's needs, you know the situation. And part of that means not granting people basic bodily autonomy, not allowing women to have any sense that they control and make choices about their own bodies. And the United States was... Founded wow. like the original wow. European settlers, the Puritans, my ancestors, who believed that there is no salvation through good works, only through the grace of God, and mortifying the body and feeling ashamed 
of your body's needs and functions was one of the steps you could take to gain God's grace. So the foundation of our nation is from the people who thought the British were too permissive about their bodies, right? And layer on, so like speaking as a person with a like fully American point of view, like Puritans and the mortification of the body. And so their rest, their joy, their pleasure is all theft from the person who owns their body and feels entitled to their labor. The combination of those two intensely toxic dynamics brought us to this place where bodies are not perceived to be a legitimate source of divinity, even though our bodies are the ultimate, in my opinion, bodies are like the ultimate foundation of our divinity and our access to a sense of connection and purpose and meaning in life. And it's really dangerous to let women in particular believe that their bodies are divine. Wow. I mean, your 2020 research self had a real, real premonition. I mean, if you would have told me we'd be here in 2022 with women's rights being rolled back into literally dangerous, dangerous, like autocratic spaces, I just wouldn't have believed it. I really wouldn't know. I'd be like, not in America. That's not one thing that's on the chopping block. Like we've, we've secured that win for years and decades. People have been working to deprive us of the ability to make choices about our bodies and our families and our sexuality. And it's all grounded, in my opinion, it's grounded in the idea that we deserve to be punished for breaking other people's rules about what our bodies are supposed to do. Somebody else has really strong opinions about what we're supposed to do with our bodies. And those opinions are so strong, they want to make them into laws and punish us if we violate somebody else's opinion about what our body should be and do. This went much darker, much sooner than I thought it would. Look, we're not messing around here. I've got you for a limited amount of time. Let's go at it. This is where we are. This is the truth of it. I mean, this is the truth of it. I, I've got daughters and I'm like your sister. I was like, there are some things that are, that's just, this is settled law. We have double precedence around this already. Like we're going to fight battles over here, but that's not going to be one of them. You were right. And I was wrong. And when I think about their generation being raised backwards, it's an overwhelming prospect. It's overwhelming for all women, but it's also overwhelming for our democracy to your point. Like this is a marker. It's a, it's a predictable marker on a predictable path. And so that is perhaps the most alarming. And that's an, as you say, alarming fact that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable looking at. And like, I don't need people to dwell in the darkness of it because there is, I feel so much hope in the power of people like me and people like you advocating for women to trust their bodies, to reject the idea that their body belongs to another human being or is required to follow somebody else's rules, that they can live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And it's not just that they are living a better life as a result of that. They are making the world a better place when they resist the capitalist, white supremacist, cis heteropatriarchal norms that say that your body is a machine and you owe your labor 
to the culture and your worth can be determined by your work and how exhausted you are rather than in like how much you enjoyed the orgasm you had today. Okay. Since you just mentioned an orgasm, let's steer into sex. Your work around this is incredible. My friend, Sarah Bessie is the first person who ever told me about come as you are years ago. And this was when for a lot of us, it was sort of the genesis of this new way of thinking. It's not new, but this empowered way of thinking about our bodies, about our sexuality, about desire and pleasure, like things that were strangely whispered about, I guess, when we were growing up or like we were assumed that we just get what we can get. I don't really know, but your work was very seminal to me early on to start going, wait a minute, we get to think like this? Like we get to be like this? This is exciting. So let's start here. You say that we actually don't have a sex drive, which is, let's hear more. It's a scary sentence. We don't have a sex drive? Some people have misunderstood this to be me saying that we don't have any interest in sex, which is like- So not true. Obviously untrue. Yes. I'm so interested in sex. I wrote a whole book about it. It's your whole work. Uh But biologically, a drive is a really specific kind of motivational system. Thirst is a drive. Hunger is a drive. Thermoregulation is a drive. Even sleep is a drive. So a drive is an uncomfortable internal experience that happens inside your body that sends an alarm signal saying, alert, there is something out of balance in my body and you need to go do something in order to create that balance right? So you need to go have yourself a snack. You need to go make sure you drink more fluids. You need to put on a sweater if you're feeling too cold, right? And the reason you have this uncomfortable internal experience is because something is wrong. And if you don't do something about it, you could literally die. You can die of hunger and thirst and cold, and you can even die of sleep deprivation. That's a drive. Sex is not one of those. Sex is instead an incentive motivation system. And I wish there were a more pithy way to talk about it. I understand why people continue to say sex drive. It is so much easier to say, but let's make sure we know that what exactly we're talking about. Instead of having an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes us out into the world, we have a pleasurable internal experience that pulls us. We're not pushed out by the discomfort. We are pulled towards something that makes us go, ooh, ooh, what's that? I want to know more about that. I want to explore. Ooh, what's that? An incentive motivation system. I always think about Bugs Bunny on a on a hand of steam wafting off of an apple pie sitting in a window. <laughs> like, yeah. ooh, ooh, what's that? I want to get with know more about that. Mm, right? Yeah. And the reason it's there's a there's many reasons why it's important that we make this distinction but in our day-to-day lives first of all we need to know that if you are craving sex that's normal because you have memories of the pleasure of sex and you're like oh i would like to have some more of that pleasure that would be a really good idea but nothing bad is going to happen to you you are not going to die you are not even going to get sick you may well get frustrated Because we get frustrated when we want something and can't get it. Like my husband gets frustrated when he wants a Chicago hot dog. 
And like, there just isn't anywhere around. Like he does all this internet research and gets increasingly frustrated because he can't find the specific kind of hot dog he would really love to eat. That frustration is never going to kill him. That's right. He may think it will, but it will not. Yes. Yeah, he may he might feel like he is being driven around the bend, but he's not in any physical danger, right? And another reason why it matters is because if sex were a drive, well, I mean, let's take hunger. If you never spontaneously, involuntarily experienced hunger, you would forget to eat. And that would be a sign that there was something pretty wrong with that system in your body, right? And if we believe that sex is a drive, then if you never spontaneously, involuntarily craved sex, there'd be something wrong with you if sex were a drive, but it is not. Instead, it is more like curiosity, exploration. And we can all relate to the reality that there are certain times in our lives, certain contexts we can live in where we feel really curious to explore new things. And there are other Context where we're like, I just want to rewatch the same 12 episodes of this show that I've already watched 78 times. I am not curious to explore new things. I just want like comfort and numbing. That's normal. And so if we're not spontaneously curious about things, sometimes we all recognize that, like, of course I'm not. I'm too stressed. I'm too exhausted. There's nothing particularly to be curious about right now. There's a, a sex researcher named Peggy Kleinplatz. She's a sex researcher and therapist. And one of the most important things she talks about is when a couple comes into sex therapy and one of them says, you know what? I'd be happy never to have sex again ever in my life. I'm sorry that hurts my partner's feelings, but that's just how I feel. And Dr. Kleinplatz's answer is, so tell me more about this sex you do not want. <laughs> and what kind of sex yeah. do you suppose they describe at that point? Yeah, yeah. Not great, dismal, not great, disappointing, where yeah. they feel like there's no space for their authentic self, where they feel like they're being treated like a sex vending machine, where it's painful, it's boring. And Dr. Kleinplatz's response is, well, I rather like sex, but if I were having the sex you described, I would not want it either. It's mm, good. It mm-hmm. is normal not to want sex you do not like. That it's- makes sense. So simple. And yet, and yet we are also worried about desire so much of the time when really that's not a low desire couple. I mean, they have low desire, but the desire is not the problem. That's a low pleasure couple. Sex is not worth being curious about. Sex is not worth the effort that it takes to like change the sheets because it's not pleasurable enough. So because sex is an incentive motivation system, the incentive to have it has to be strong enough to overcome the actual effort that it takes to, you know, put away the last of the dishes and like get childcare if you have to get childcare and transition out of work mode or parent mode or all the other stuff and get into hey, sexy lady mode. It is not without effort. So it needs to be worth it. This is logical, what you're saying right now, that incredibly like pleasurable sex makes you want to have it. It makes you want to have it more. Yeah. Have pleasure. Desire will follow. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. 
So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Ask to pro and go. So what about the person listening that's going, I've been with the same person for so long. It could be, I don't know my own body. It could mean my body was assaulted at one point. And so this is a trigger for me. You know, there's a million reasons why. A million really good reasons. Good reasons, right. That's again, probably our body trying to protect us in some way or keep us safe. What would you say to the person maybe listening right now? I'm going to just shoot for an average here that a great deal of women around the middle of life here, kind of where we are. Yeah. 45, fully perimenopausal right now. 47. There we go. (laughs) I think what I hear a lot in the community is that sex at this point is so routine. It's lost its sparkle, it's pizzazz, and it feels just kind of like work. Thus, the desire kind of fades off with it. So this is possible to overcome, right? Even with the same partner you've had forever. Yeah. Suppose you're in a long-term, actually the book I am currently writing is about sex and long-term relationships, whether they're monogamous or not. Uh, So I've been thinking about this one a whole bunch. Let's hear what you have to say. And the key is we know that couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long-term have two things in common. And those two things are not what most people generally think they are. They are one, the couple has a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship They admire and trust each other. They're capable of emotional attunement and they're kind to each other. That's the friendship part. And like kindness is not always easy. We can talk about what to do and kindness isn't easy, but like that's the foundation. And the second characteristic is they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters enough for their relationship to cordon off space, time, and mental energy to stop doing all the other things they could be doing. And goodness knows we are busy, right? We have lots of other things we could be doing with our time. So why on earth would we stop doing, why would we even stop watching our favorite TV show? Go into, for example, the bedroom, take off our clothes, lie in the bed, let our skin touch our partner's skin. Why would we put our mouths on each other's genitals? Like, why? Why spend time doing that? Except that you decide that it contributes something important to your individual lives and to your relationships. So the first question is, why? Does sex even matter? Is it important? And it is normal for there to be times in your life when the answer is, uh, it's like 48th on the list. Like it doesn't not matter, but like I have all these other things that need to be taken care of much more urgently, right? And for ACE folks, it's a relief to be like, actually, no, 
what if I could just stop trying to want or like sex? What a relief. And even for folks who aren't ace, who've been like beating the crap out of themselves for having lower desire than their partner, for having a not very active sexual imagination, like what if you weren't required to fix your sexuality? Hmm. What if all you did was think about what it is you each want when you want sex? Because you don't want just orgasm. If you wanted an orgasm, you could have to do that by yourself. If you can't do that by yourself, there's a whole appendix in Come As You Are about how to have your first orgasm. So what is it that we want when we want sex with this other person? And I have asked a few hundred people this question over the years, and the number one answer is connection. There are other answers too, like pleasure and play and a sense of freedom. That, that was the really, like, of course it should have been obvious, but it surprised me how many people said that what they want when they want sex is to be released from the humdrum mundane parts of their life, just to be able to focus on this erotic, pleasurable moment, to feel free in their bodies, to experience that kind of joy. And then what do people like when they like sex? And it turns out those answers, what you want and what you like are not identical. Connection, still number one. But also people really love the sense of safety that comes with a high quality erotic connection. So when people are in that, like, I'm stuck, I just like, it's so much easier and so much more rewarding just to watch. Well, for me, it's Miss Marple. (laughs) (laughs) Cozy (laughs) mysteries. Cozy mysteries. It's easier. Yes. Requires less. Yeah. Like I don't even have to get off the couch. Sure. So like when you're like, I need to like, under what circumstances is it worthwhile for me to get off the couch and out of my pajamas? The questions are, what is it that I want when I want sex? And what is it that I like when I like sex? And talk about those answers with your partner and it'll help you to remember why. If if there is a why for sex in your relationship, this will help you remind you why. And then you go to ye olde dual control model, which I'm sure you've talked about before. But the super quick version is the mechanism in your brain that controls sexual arousal is a dual control mechanism, which means it has two parts as a sexual accelerator, which activates that turn on signal a lot of us are familiar with. And then there's also the brakes, which notice all the good reasons not to be turned on right now which includes a whole lot of stuff. So if you're bored in your sex life, like if it's just the same sex over, it's sex by rote, essentially, you just memorized it and you're doing it on autopilot, that's sex that's not really providing a lot of activation of the accelerator. But it's actually more common when people are struggling for them not to have too little stimulation to the accelerator, but too much stimulation to the brakes because there are so many things that can hit the brakes. Everything from body image to just stress and mere distraction, like thinking about the last dishes in the sink. Did they make it into the dishwasher or are we going to have to start another load of dishes immediately? Like that kind of like nonsense is not going to be activating your accelerator and making it easy to like the sex you are currently having. Totally. To relationship distress like feeling a lack of trust, feeling like you can't admire your partner and your partner doesn't admire you, feeling like your partner is not kind, patient, and generous with you, or trauma history, of course. And sometimes it's really simple stuff. One of my favorite pieces of science to come as you are is that some Dutch 
brain researchers were studying what happens in the brain at orgasm, and they found that they could increase the likelihood their research participants would have orgasms in a PET scanner. Like, so this is a very unsexy environment, like going in to have your brain scanned while you have an orgasm. But when he allowed participants to keep their socks on, he doubled the likelihood that they would actually have an orgasm. Why? Bananas. Because their feet were cold. Their feet were cold and it was distracting. I told this to a friend and she bought a pair of wool thigh high (laughs) socks. So she got like all that warmth. Her partner got the great Uh visual that Uh she already knew he was into. And it it worked out really well. Like you can find ways to make these little things. If you're distracted by grit on the sheets, change the sheets. It is worth stopping changing the sheets so that you are not distracted. Like not all these things have to be like therapy to heal from trauma or body image issues. Sometimes it's just these little things that you can adjust. Lock the door. In Peggy Kleinplatz's research, she talked to a 70-something woman who said the most important accessory you need in sex is Vaseline. You put it on the doorknob. (laughs) Every parent in the world just went, amen. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think, can you change the way that you respond to your brakes and your accelerator? Yeah. We're born with very little innate stimuli that activate the accelerator or hit the brakes, right? Like genital sensations themselves maybe innately activate the accelerator, but all that stuff we learn as the potential threats is learned. Like on the day we're born, People look at our genitals, declare it's a boy or it's a girl most of the time. And they raise us according to a script about who we're supposed to be as gendered people, as sexual people. And all of that stuff got learned and all of it can be unlearned. So if you got taught that like you're not allowed to make noise, you're not allowed to make a mess, you're not allowed to put your pleasure first. You can notice that that happened and begin practicing. And it all, really all it takes is practice. Like gently at first, low stakes, keep the stakes super low. What literally is the worst thing that can happen? If you practice masturbating, making a little bit extra noise or really prioritizing your pleasure, what's the worst thing that can happen? You have a pleasurable experience where you learn something about yourself. Feels like a win-win. Right? Yeah. So making sure you feel like the stakes are low. You are not trying to conform to anyone else's ideal of who you are as a sexual person. That might be like the most important step is when you were born, somebody gave you a script that included like an ideal self who you were supposed to be. And over the years, you have learned more and more about the ways that you are not a match for whoever that ideal self is. So let her go. And just recognize that the self that you are right now, the sensations your body gives you right now, are sensations worth having. The person you are is a person worth being. This is the whole like, you're you're enough. But the thing is, you are enough. It is only in this like culturally constructed comparison against a fictional and often deliberately unachievable ideal that we torture ourselves about the way our sexuality works. Hmm. It's frustrating to hear it described by you so clearly because it's such a losing game. And so many of us are losing at it and we were meant to. 
we were yes, never meant to beat along. this. This was a rigged game. And if you feel enraged about that, that's correct. And if you feel grief about that, that is also correct. And our rage and our grief can be superpowers. They can be sites of healing and liberation. Our bodies grow and learn when we allow them to heal. I talk about this, I'm contractually obligated to say this no matter where I am. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through them to get to the light at the end. And grief and rage are difficult feelings that we have been taught to fear and avoid. The idea of just experiencing that sensation can somehow do harm to us or to the people around us. And that is not true either. We actually heal ourselves when we allow that uncomfortable feeling to melt through our bodies. On the other side of it, that process has healed our bodies and freed us from the lies that we were told when we were small. Hmm. It's a powerful truth. And I've learned that in real time the last couple of years. And that is the way through. It ends up being the delivery tool. And so it's normal to to feel rage about how we were raised and taught and perceived sexually to get to the middle of life and be like, well, damn, I mean, I've, I've missed a lot. I've missed out on a lot. I spent all those years trying to be this thing. Yeah. And that was, all of it was a lie. All of it was a lie. And even to the detriment of our own pleasure our own preferences. There was such a self-consciousness kind of wrapped around it and also perfunctory work. Like this is our labor. You mentioned this at the top of the show. Like this is what we have to offer to the partner we have. And yet the whole notion of like your own body getting to want what it wants, like when wild, wonderful ways is, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it is. Do you find women are hung up here still? Oh yeah. And they will continue to like, this is a really big sort of lifelong unlearning. We spent decades, decades mired in this idea that, I mean, a lot of us get raised to believe that our pleasure is not really ours. Our pleasure is there to be consumed by our partner. We are objects of someone else's sexual desire, not subjects of our own sexual pleasure. I got taught to put on a show. I got taught that men really like it when women seem to be having a good time. So I got taught to act like I was having a good time so that he would like it. And there's this like big, deep irony that I was learning on to put on the show of pleasure without paying it, even asking whether or not I was actually experiencing pleasure. Right. <laughs> right. Cause you could have just been having pleasure. Like, right. It's you could have skipped just, we could have skipped the charade and like, yeah, well, it. but we couldn't skip the charade because the things that actually brought me pleasure turned out not to be the same things as the things that brought him pleasure. Can you talk about this? Well, so here's a sentence people have complicated feelings about. There is nothing inherently erotic about vaginal penetration. Okay. Only a quarter to a third of cisgender women are reliably orgasmic from vaginal penetration, as the research calls it, unassisted intercourse. And the remaining two-thirds to three-quarters are sometimes rarely or never orgasmic from that kind of stimulation. Yeah. And so what if 
two thirds to three quarters of the sex we had didn't involve unassisted vaginal intercourse. Yeah. Many, many couples where nobody has a penis and everybody has a vagina, many of those couples do engage in vaginal penetration because it can be super fun, but they also spend a lot of time not having penetrative sex. And queer couples have more orgasms than heterosexual couples. This makes sense. Of course it makes sense. Just the way our bodies are. There's nothing wrong with our bodies. So what if the way our sex was matched the way our bodies are? Yeah. What if we're like, no intercourse for me tonight, but let's go down on each other. Yeah. And and what holds us back here is what? We don't want to disappoint our partner. We don't think we deserve a different mechanism. Like, what do you think are the primary deterrents to stop a woman from saying, hey, guess what I actually really love? Like, this is a home run. This, 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 and this. Why don't we just say it? It's our moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and above all, attentive to the needs of others, even girls who masturbate and learn how to orgasm on their own before they ever have partnered sex. Once a partner comes into the picture, regardless of the gender of the partner, our attention is just going to shift so much onto whether or not we are meeting our partner's expectations, whether or not our partner is satisfied. The main reason we fake orgasms is not because we're trying to lie, but because we really want our partner to be satisfied. And we've been taught that, and our partners often have been taught that our orgasm is a measure of their competence or value as a person, right? And so, and if orgasm just is not there for us, we'll be like, okay, I'll just get here. Have the orgasm that you need in order to feel better. We would rather fake our own pleasure than disappoint our partners, right? And so the the answer here, the solution here, how do you counsel people that you don't, that's not a, you know, it's not a prison you have to stay in. That arrangement is not a life sentence. And there is another option here sexually with your partner where everybody is winning. Like, how do you grab us by our little anxious hands, all the fake orgasms in the world and draw us into like someplace that is much better than that for our personal, like sexual enjoyment? Yeah, it's really about absorbing and embodying the reality that you get to experience pleasure on your own terms for its own sake. There is no quota of pleasure. There's no such thing as too little pleasure and there's no such thing as too much pleasure. Nobody gets to judge or decide about your experience of pleasure. There's no right or wrong way to experience pleasure. There is no better or worse way because we know Like we were raised with a hierarchy of which kinds of things were supposed to give us pleasure. And like, this is the best pleasure and this is the immature bad pleasure, right? And we're taught to feel ashamed and guilty about our pleasure so that we barely even notice. Betty Dodson, the orgasm guru who coached so many women to their first orgasms, when you watch her video coaching sessions, so often women talk about 
orgasms not living up to their expectations or like they get close to orgasm and it becomes, it becomes too much. They can't take it. And so they stop. They don't lean into the pleasure. They don't allow their body to grab the pleasure and hold on. And she coaches them to stay with it, lean into it. We don't even feel the patterns of ourselves withdrawing from pleasure as it gets big. We're afraid that if we let it take over, we will lose control and something bad could happen to us. And all of that is just cultural shame and baggage. So the practice of allowing pleasure to grow in your body as big as it wants to get, yeah, you might feel out of control. You might feel like your body's going to do something that you're like, I don't know if it's okay for my body to do that thing. But you you allow, you trust your body, you let the pleasure get as big as it wants to get and see what happens. Yeah, I like this. This is really good homework. This is the best kind of homework I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, low stakes. There's literally nothing bad that can happen. That's so great. One thing that does happen is that people can tap into something really ancient in their bodies. The shame that, I mean, it goes all the way back to our potty training. The times when we were scolded for the failures of our self-control over our own bodies. And so we get to these really high levels of intense sensation and that ancient shame surfaces because it needs to like remove itself from us to make space for all this pleasure. And we end up at a high level of pleasure, weeping and not sure why and wondering if it's okay. And that grief doesn't have to be an experience of pain or suffering. It can be an ecstatically pleasurable experience of releasing old stuff that you never picked. You never chose to have shame about pleasure or releasing and relaxing into your body's functions. So if the worst thing that can happen is that you purge some of the culturally imposed junk that you absorbed, that's a win. That's extraordinary. So we need not be afraid of all the big things that can happen when we allow pleasure to be what it wants to be inside of us. I've really heard anybody explain that. My girlfriends and I have had that experience before and we'd look at each other like, do you ever cry? Like, what, why am I crying? Like, this is the best moment of the whole thing. Like, why am I crying? I, I've never really had anybody explain that that might be really old, embedded ancient yeah. patterns. You may never like have the like insight of like, oh, I remember the time when, because the, the conscious memory doesn't exist anymore. It's diffused into your whole brain and body, but your body, the body keeps the score. Your body remembers and it will give us this gift of letting go of this decades old lesson that it learned. Hmm. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. 
I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool relief and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. You talk about two different kinds of desire. And they're hugely important to understanding how our bodies respond sexually. Could you discuss that a little bit? Sure. So the technical terms here are spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Spontaneous desire is the one I got raised believing was the correct experience of desire. Indeed, the only experience of desire which is where you're just like, you know, walking down the street, you have a stray sexy thought and suddenly kaboom, Erica Moen is the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are. And she draws spontaneous desire is a lightning bolt to the genitals. Boom. (laughs) You just want some sex. I would like to go, how do I get some sex? Spontaneous desire is absolutely one of the normal healthy ways we can experience desire. It appears in anticipation of pleasure. Whereas responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So instead of it being like just kaboom, lightning bolt, oh, like some sex, you often in a long-term relationship, it's like date night, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We, we decided Saturday, 7 p.m., we got the child care. I'm going to throw the last of the laundry into the dryer and let it run. So I'm multitasking while we have our date night. I'm going to like take a shower and put on some fun things. And you're like, I guess this is going to be a good idea, right? You put your body in the bed, you show up. And as your skin touches your partner's skin, as you reconnect with this person, your brain goes, oh, oh, right. This is a good idea. That's responsive desire. It emerges in response to the pleasure. And my thing is, If you get there and your skin, I was told this story one time to a couple of friends, we were sitting at a bar and they didn't tell me they were struggling. What they told me, they asked the question. So how do couples sustain a strong connection over the long term? And I said, you put your bodies in the bed, you let your skin touch your partner's skin and you go, oh, right. I really like this person. And as I was saying that my friend, the wife in the partnership withdrew from the table and got this disgusted look on her face. And I was like, okay, so desire is not your problem. What you have is a lack of pleasure. You do not like the sex available to you when you put it on your calendar and make the time. Like that is not sex worth having. So what you need to talk about is what the barriers are between you and sex worth having. And like the end of the story is they got a divorce because it really was not just about the sex. What she was withdrawing from was the way she felt disrespected and not listened to. Yeah. Like it's it so much bigger than you said than just, earlier. Like there's two real main things that keep couples like happy and like enjoying each other. And one of them is kindness and safety and respect. I mean, without it, I can understand there's no amount of skin on skin can overcome that. Yeah. And different people vary. For some people, skin on skin is the way they overcome a lack of trust. There's something really powerful and healing. And for some people, like they don't need to particularly 
enjoy their partner's company in order to have a perfectly satisfying sexual experience. People vary. One is not better than the other. But if you're a person who needs to like and admire your partner and you need to know that they like and admire you, that they respect you, that they're there for you, then there is no amount of lingerie or handcuffs or porn or role play that's ever going to make you interested in having the sex available to you with a person whom you don't trust. Yes. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. But as we look at those two responses, spontaneous, and then of course, responsive, those tend to be sort of, they're not baked in, but I would guess that we generally lean toward one or the other. Can they change? Can we fan the flames? They do change a lot over our lifespan, right? Because like early in a relationship, you got that like new relationship energy, the hot and heavy, like constantly can't wait kind of thing. You know, you're cooking dinner for a date and you're certain special someone comes over and starts like nibbling on a certain special somewhere and your knees melt and you're like, we will let dinner burn. Totally. Let's go. Absolutely. 10 years later. And who knows how much like gunk build up between you and like maybe some kids and a lot of stress about money and all the things you're in the middle of cooking dinner. And that same certain special someone comes in and starts nibbling on the same certain special place. And your response is not knees melt, let the dinner burn. It is, would you go set the table? <laughs> right? Set there the is table. nothing wrong. <laughs> There's a change in the context, which creates a perfectly normal and understandable change in the way your brain perceives that sensation. And so, yeah, what it requires is working to create, and I'm using the word work here. Yes. Working to create a context that makes it easy for your brain to interpret a sensation as pleasurable instead of irritating. Mm. Mm, I like Which, that. Which that project, so one of the things I'm writing in the new book is about this idea of a third thing. This comes from a, an essay by the poet Donald Hall about his 23-year marriage, where he talks about having third things in a relationship. These are the points of joint ecstasy and contentment. For some people, it's their kids. For, for them, it was poetry. For some people, it's their garden. It's a, a fandom, right? A third thing that you turn your shared attention toward. And I think the project of creating a context in your relationship that makes it easy to gain access to pleasure can be a third thing. It's like a if you have a fixer-upper home, you have the long-term project of renovating it, right? If you live in any kind of home, things are constantly going to go wrong. And you don't expect like, once you move in, everything's going to be fine. When people get married, they think, we sex life is good now. Everything's going to be fine forever. That is not how it goes. Instead, you normalize not the like, it's having sex itself, but the project of continually checking in to assess the context. How stressed out are people? How trusting and connected do you feel with each other? Because that changes the context. How is your relationship with your body these days? Because that's going to change the context too. Normalizing, talking about this stuff in an ongoing way, because in a long-term sexual relationship, it's not so much characterized by the moments that people have sex. Very few of us have sex very frequently. Like we're busy. We have other things we need to do. Instead, the primary characteristic of couples who sustain this strong sexual connection is the way they continually talk about making it easy to get to the sex part. Yeah. 
That's so important. And that's just so good. It's not actually And yet people hate that. (laughs) I know you're right. And I don't know why. It's so much easier just to have sex with someone than to talk about what you need and want. You're so right. But it's not actually a, a hard lever to pull to just say, this is something to like dial up the communication around and push through our self-consciousness around it or our anxiety around it. And it has, and not all of that process is fun. Some of it is like digging up old stuff from our childhood and repairing damage that was done in a relationship. But a lot of it can be really funny. Like uh, when you're planning a vacation, like you get the, like, Oh, Oh, I know what else we can do. We can try this. And Ooh, look at this menu of things we could potentially try. <laughs> I like it. Part of your sexual communication can be that kind of play of like, Oh, Oh, next time, next time, let's make sure we've got like the gallon jug of lube. Cause I want to try, like, what if we just like both of us get saturated in lube and rub our slippery skins against each other and roll around like puppies. I love it. I love it so much. It's, it could be so much fun. I'm laughing because I'm all along the spectrum here on everything you're talking about. Cause I was married for so, 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 so long. And then I wasn't, and now I'm in a new relationship. So I'm just like, I understand everything you're saying right now. I understand like the long-term play where it it, it looks like one thing. I understand the new fancy shiny part. It's just like wild. Yeah. You never again have to fall into the trap of believing that the new shiny hot and heavy part is like the right way to experience desire. It can be fun. But like, I mean, if you dated, you probably have recently had the experience of maybe being interested in someone and desiring them. And it sucks because they don't feel the same way. So our perception of all sensation depends on the context, even our perception of the sensation of desire. It can feel amazing and so much fun. And it can also feel like torture, depending on the context. So never get stuck thinking that like hot and heavy is the right way to do it, there is just as much value in like sitting down at the end of a long day and planning the sex you're going to have two weeks from now, because that's the first time both your schedules are free. You always say stuff like this. And it's one of my favorite things about your work is how much you normalize all sorts of responses sexually, all sorts of innate desires, things we have to work toward seasons of life. You just really have helped eliminate sort of the shame and the should around it all, which frees us up to be where we're at, to like have like honest and open dialogue, to figure out our own bodies without any guilt around that. And permission, we all have it. We all have it. We just don't have enough days on this earth to squander something that is so wonderful and can be so exciting and so precious and so good. And so I just feel like This could and should get to be a priority in our conversations with our own bodies, with our partners, as women. Let's enjoy what can really be enjoyable. Yeah. And the world does not want you to do that. It will try to stop you. The wrong partner could judge you for being like, I would love to experience a lot more pleasure. Let's talk about the ways we can get me more pleasure. The wrong partner will be like, I don't, let's, I'm not going to talk about that. The right partner will be like, yes. Totally. Would you? Yes. (laughs) That's right. 
That's right. And then that triggers all that spontaneous, like sexual desire because you're talking about it more often. So there it is like coming up in your brain and making you feel and excited. The fact that you know that your partner is interested in experiencing more pleasure and you know that your partner is excited about you experiencing more pleasure. Like well, that helps to create a context that makes it easy I like that to context. interpret a sensation as sexy. I yeah. like that context. It doesn't happen out of the blue. Sometimes you really have to put a lot of time and intention into creating that context. But the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection do that. They put time and intention into creating a great context. That's it. We're going to close here with something you wrote. And I love it. This is what you said. No girl is born hating her body or feeling ashamed of her sexuality. You had to learn that. No girl is born worried that she'll be judged if someone finds out what kind of sex she enjoys. You had to learn that too. You have to learn as well that it is safe to be loved, safe to be your authentic self, safe to be sexual with another person, or even safe to be on your own. That's so lovely and so true and so sad and so right. Can you talk just a little bit more as we close about that and even about your gardener metaphor, which is a beautiful way to capture sexuality? Yeah, I'm actually, if it's if it's not uncomfortable for you, I'm thinking about your daughters. No, it's not. And like the day they were born, they were totally free of shame about their bodies and they were held in an embrace of love and described as perfect, exactly the way they were. And however much time passes, Nothing about that changes, except insofar as our culture. So I, I talk about this, this garden metaphor. And the day we're all born, we're given a little plot of rich and fertile soil. And our family of origin and our culture of origin begin to plant these ideas about safety and sex and love and gender and bodies. And we don't get to, we don't get to choose any of that. They're all doing it for us. They teach us to tend the garden. So by the time we get to adulthood, we have this garden. and. Some of us get really lucky and we had lots of like sex positive, full of bodily autonomy ideas about pleasure and love and safety. And some of it gets stuck with some really toxic shit in our gardens. And we have an opportunity. It's not fair because we didn't pick it, but we do have an opportunity to go row by row through our gardens and decide what we want to keep and what we want to throw on the compost heap to rot. So there are two modes of creating positive change for everyone. There is each of us individually working on our gardens to cultivate something that we choose for ourselves because nobody else has to like it except for like the people we choose to share it with, right? And also let's create a world where the really toxic stuff doesn't get planted in anybody else's garden. Let's make a world with less body shame. Let's make a world where girls are raised to believe that they have a basic right to bodily autonomy and that they have that pleasure is their birthright. They have the right to all the pleasure that their body is capable of experiencing without being afraid of it or ashamed of it or needing to prioritize somebody else's pleasure over theirs. Hmm. I like that world. I want that world. I want to help build that world. I want We're to doing live in that right world. Now. We're doing it. This is it. This is the work right here. These conversations, these whole communities of women writing a new story, 
for ourselves first, but definitely for our daughters coming up behind. That feels very exciting. That feels very hopeful. It feels so possible. And I love it. And you are a huge, huge leader in this conversation, in this reversal. And it's such a great and wonderful good for the world. And so I'm so thankful for you and all you put your hand to and your big brain and all your smart thoughts. And it has meant so much to me personally. And thus I have made it mean something to my entire community. (laughs) Because when something is teaching and leading (laughs) and instructing me, everybody gets it. That's just how it works around here. That's fantastic. Last question. I asked you this the first time you were on the podcast and I'll ask it again. And please answer this however you feel like. This could just be darling and earnest or it could just be nonsense. And I, yeah. I love all answers. The answer the is question, Ms. Marple. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. The what is saving your life? Is it? Is that it? So, I mean, Miss Marple is a very functional number when things get too much and I just need to like block out the world. But the thing that's actually saving my life, I had the opportunity recently to talk to Adrienne Marie Brown, and she taught me a gratitude for pleasure practice. So instead of being grateful for like what you have or for the people in your life, each day you sit and write about or talk about the pleasure you are grateful to have experienced that day. And I started practicing it individually at first, and then I started talking about it with my husband every single day. And it changes everything. Because my struggle is transitioning out of work mode into like human being mode. And this practice is a bridge from what I've been working on to thinking about like the sensations in my body and noticing like the sunlight through the windows and the new leaf that's growing on the monstera and like the actual flavor of the food I eat. And it changes how I see my husband because I am training my brain to notice pleasure. And it turns out that it increases my brain's access to beauty. So highly recommend for anybody who's interested. I love this. I think that is fantastic that sort of honing in of gratitude to, to pleasure specifically, like through all of our senses, just through everything that we experience in any given day, that is very lovely. Yeah. And neurologically, like the pleasure is a practice. The more we practice paying attention to pleasure, the easier it is for our brains to notice pleasure. I like it. I like that. I like all of this. I like this whole conversation. Thank you once again for coming in here and leading us well. Thank you. This is my favorite thing to talk about. So obviously it's been a delight. My favorite thing to hear you talk about. Can you just, and I'm going to have all this available for my community. Uh, I'm just telling you right now, a billion women are like, I need more. Can you tell them where to find you and all your things? Yeah. So books are available wherever books are sold. I recommend the audio books in particular. And also I write a newsletter, which you can find. So if you go to my website, emilynagoski.com, there's like a big blue button you can click to subscribe to the newsletter. It's six per month. Two of them are from Amelia and are about burnout. And four of them are sex-related stuff. It's awesome. We didn't even get to any of the connection between burnout stuff and sex stuff. It's because we need a hundred hours. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being you in the world. You are doing it and it's mattering and it means so much to so many of us. And so proud of you. Thank you. Okay. Till next time. Bye. 
All right, you guys, we barely scratched the surface. There's so much more here. And Emily has done a ton of this work already. So it is available to you. If you have not, get thee to a bookstore and get a copy of Come As You Are. It's a wonderful place to start. If this is a conversation you'd like more information around, if you'd like more instruction and leadership around, you can see that you can obviously trust Emily's work, the way she talks, the way she responds to women, to her own body, to our bodies. It's just, I love her. Everything, all the places that she mentioned will have rounded up for you. If you go to jenhatmaker.com, under the podcast tab, you'll have this entire episode, all the show notes, all the links to everything Emily does. And I love that we're talking about this. I think it matters. I promise you in this space, we will keep talking about this. This is a conversation I am committed to having over and over and over and over again. And so thank you for being here. Can't wait to hear what you think. And thanks for being a listener on this series particularly, but really on just this whole show. We love you. We love putting this together for you. So Laura and her podcast team and Amanda and I are thrilled to bring it to you week in and week out. So much more in the dating and sex and relationship series. So you guys um, don't miss a single one. If you've missed any, go back and pick them up. Okay, you guys see you next week. 